We're going to carry on in our attempt to read all of John's Gospel by Easter, um, but we're not going to manage John 7 next Sunday. So can you read that at home um, sometime during the week? But here's John 5. And have your sheet ready to tick it and maybe make some notes. Particularly, you might want to make some notes. Uh, there's an empty space there. You can write about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in that space, um, should you feel so moved. John 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I've no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Was this belief that the first person into the, the pool when the waters were stirred got healed? Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. But Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, Here we go, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the son, a father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. 
If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favour, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Come to our second reading now. It follows straight on from what Nick was reading. So I'm going to be reading from John 6 and reading about some of those miracles uh, that Jesus did on earth. So we start with Jesus feeds the 5,000. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked. He asked this just to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go between so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. There were about 5,000 men there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed them to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they'd all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that were left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus walks on water. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into the boat and set off across the lake of Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. 
But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day the crowd that stayed on the opposite side of the shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered in, into it with his disciples, but he'd gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the people, near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Jesus, the bread of life. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do? What must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All those that the Father gives me gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me will, will, I will never drive away for I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose, lose none of all those he has given me but raise them up in the last day for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at that last day at this, the Jews began to grumble amongst themselves because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can you now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on that last day. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate, ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give, give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up, up on the last day. 
For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so no one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And many disciples desert, desert Jesus. On hearing it, many disciples said, This is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Let's just pray as I invite Nick up. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is complicated, uh, and it it is invisible to some people. And we just... We, we thank you for that. We thank you that we are able to see through that invisibility. And we thank you for Nick and the time he spends in explaining these things to us. So I just pray for Nick now as he comes up. I pray that uh, we, can, we can see through his words what, you, what the meaning of what Jesus said on the, uh, during that, uh, those two passages really means. Bless Nick as he comes to preach, Lord. Amen. Thanks, Bill. Yes, there were times this week when I thought I'd bitten off more than I could chew. Okay, when a spacecraft um, enters the Earth's atmosphere, um, the, the angle of approach, the angle which it encounters the atmosphere is critical. If you've seen Apollo 13 or Hidden Figures or one of those kind of movies, you'll know this. If it comes in too steep, um, then it, it, it just uh, friction and the forces just cause it to burn up. If it comes in too shallow, then strangely enough, it kind of bounces off the atmosphere like a stone um, and just heads off into space and never lands. So you need to get the angle of approach just right um, for it to land. And I feel, after this week, I feel a bit like that about John's Gospel. You've got to get your angle of approach right. If you go in deep, there's so much information that you can fry your brain. And I think I have done on occasions. But if you go in too shallow, there's a real danger of coming into John's gospel too shallow, and you read it, and you read this language about Father, Son, eternal life, but it never really penetrates, and you just, it just skips off um, and never really makes um, any impact. We don't want either of those, so we've prayed that the Lord, and we pray again, Lord, help us understand, open your word to us by your spirit this morning. And so today there's a straightforward story, and then there's a less straightforward, a deep discourse, uh, a discourse, a, a conversation um, between Jesus and the Jews who were listening. 
So the PowerPoint looks slightly funny this morning because I was going to try and get something down the right-hand side, um, which hasn't worked. So if it looks funny, that's why, um, and it's shorter and it's different. But that'll keep you on your toes as well. Um, have the sermon notes. Don't mind whether you use the front or the back. Um, as usual, the words are in the word search just to help you keep concentrating, but they're yellow because the red doesn't show up. So, um, a fairly straightforward, well, if you can ever call a miracle straightforward, a fairly straightforward miracle. It's the only one that comes up in all four Gospels. And the action takes place, the, the discussion in John 5, the healing of the pool, you recognize that's in Jerusalem, and that conversation takes place in Jerusalem. So, this uh, miracle takes place across the far side of the Sea of Galilee. So you've got Dead Sea, I'll have to do it this way, Dead Sea, um, Jerusalem, Sea of Galilee, and they've just crossed over um, onto the eastern side. And Jesus, we read, has gone up into the mountainside, he's gone up into the hill country. Today that's called the Golan Heights. We're told it was coming up to Passover. And we'll look at John's chronology, you know, the time frames of John's Gospel another time. But just note for the moment that, again, Jesus is using the situation um, to draw out his lessons. So the woman at the well, he, she needs living water. Uh, and the gift that Jesus will give will be a spring welling up to eternal life. The Passover crowds, in the Passover that's coming up, they need the real Passover lamb and they need the real Passover bread. But it also means that the crowd are... Uh, full of nationalistic fervor. Uh, it's a time when the Jews remember um, the, the formation of their own nation. As we read along, we kind of, as we said last time, the gospels interlock. So uh, John doesn't tell us that it's late in the day. Mark tells us that uh, it's late in the day. The crowd have been listening to Jesus for quite a long time. It's not so clear in John that they've been sitting there a while. Um, and Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd. They weren't coming towards him. I don't think that's a great translation. But he looks up and recognizes the crowd are there. And they need feeding. And only John tells us that Jesus um, specifically speaks to, to Philip. He says to Philip, where should we get bread? Why does he ask Philip? Because Philip was a resident of Bethsaida and that was just around the corner. Philip reckons it'll take eight months of wages, even for everybody just to have a little bite of bread. And it's Andrew, we're told by John, who finds the boy, or who might be a young man, he might be a young slave, who has five barley loaves. Again, John is specific about the barley. Barley loaves with the cheap bread. And the pickled fish, of course, to go with it. Probably pickled that were just put on your bread. Someone's shopping, probably, not someone's lunch. So some poor soul has been sent out to the shops, I reckon, and he's come back and um, Andrew's taking it off him. Well, or thereabouts. The barley loaves, um, a reminder that Elijah did something similar in, in 2 Kings 4. I'll let you go and look that up for yourself. But Elijah did a similar miracle. So there is, Jesus is doing something greater than Elijah here. Jesus gets them all to sit down in an orderly fashion. There was plenty of grass. And there might have been 20,000 people. 5,000 men plus women and, and children. Jesus gives thanks for the bread. 
If it was a Jewish blessing, he would say something like, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And they all had enough to eat. They all had a meal's worth of bread. That's the implication. Then they collect what was over. That was a Jewish custom. It's just part of social responsibility um, to collect what was left over at the end of a meal. But there is more left over than there was to start with. There is more left over than there was to start with. This isn't the fact that some little lad or some young slave who, who brings the shopping, causes everybody else to get their lunch out, and just doesn't explain it. Because they all had enough to eat, and there were 12 basketfuls left over at the end. It's a sign. It's one of John's seven signs. He doesn't use the word miracle. A sign in, in, in John's mind is a miracle that points to an identity points to this fact that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is God in human flesh. And the people see the sign, and they start to say, surely this is the prophet who's to come into the world. So back in, uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses says that God will raise up another prophet like him. So the Jews are expecting another Moses. And it's a bit confused, because back in John chapter 1, some people thought John the Baptist was Elijah, or some thought he was the prophet, which is this other prophet like Moses. And there was some confusion, because some thought this prophet was the same person as the Messiah, and other people didn't. But it's clear what happens at the end of this miracle. They say, surely this is the prophet, and they want to make him king by force. They think nobody's going to do more than this. This is the best we're going to get. Let's, um, let's march off to Jerusalem and make him king by force. Charging in as a revolutionary mob, and Jesus knows this and withdraws. We're told in the other Gospels he withdraws, but we're never told the reason. But here in John we know this is not his plan. This is not the kind of king he's come to be. So there you are. That's, that's the miracle. That's fairly straightforward. But what about the discourse? Get into uh, what Jesus says. And I think we can break it down. I think we can break it down into three or four little, com little conversations. The first one is with a crowd that doesn't believe. We'll pass over the walking on the water bit. We haven't got time to do that. Except we'll notice that Jesus has gone from here in the Sea of Galilee. And he's gone over here um, to the other side. And we're told in verse 59 that Jesus said this when he was in the synagogue in Capernaum. So somewhere between um, verse 25 and 59, he's, he's moved from the outside to the inside. And I'm going to suggest um, that that happens somewhere around verse 29. So in these first few verses, Jesus is talking to a crowd outside the synagogue. And they've seen the miracle, but they don't believe and they're confused about how Jesus got to Capernaum because they saw the one boat um, and it had gone without him and yet he's not there. He should, be, should still be there, but he's not. But they don't think about that. These are people who are so fixated about how Jesus got to Capernaum, um, so fixated on the material things that they can't see the spiritual blessings that God is offering them. 
So Don Carlson says, they've witnessed the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, their appetites, and their political ambitions have been aroused. Not their faith. It's a good summary, isn't it? They've seen the divine revealer, but they've only, only their curiosity, their appetites, and their political ambitions have been aroused. And Jesus challenges them. He says, you're only coming to me because you had full stomachs. Maybe they hadn't eaten that well for a while. And he offers them instead food that endures to eternal life. Don't work for food that spoils, he says, but work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. These people, there are people like this around churches. Down to earth, practical folks who believe that everything can be sorted out with a bit of thought and a bit of practical action. People who are all about elbow grease and getting the job done, but they're not really sure whether they're in on this spiritual thing. And maybe that's you. And maybe you're here because, it's a, uh, because for you it's a safe community. And I'm pleased and glad that we are that for you. A safe place to be. But maybe you've not got in on the spiritual business that is being done. Maybe you don't realize that there even is any spiritual business being done. But there is. And Jesus' challenge to you is to believe. What must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And actually, maybe we all have moments when we're like this kind of person, when the food we need for our tables and the work that we need to do to put it on the table seems like all we've got time for. And Jesus' call to you too is to believe. It's to have faith and to feed your faith and to nourish your spiritual life. So there's a crowd outside that doesn't believe. But when Jesus gets inside the synagogue, the congregation asks him for a sign. Verse 30, what sign then will you give that we may see it and, and believe you? Should we be charitable to them and, and uh, assume that they weren't all there outside and they didn't all see the miracle? Maybe. Maybe some of them have just heard that something happened about bread, but they didn't see it. What, anyway, what sign will you do, they ask? Now that they're in church... That stuff that happened outside, you know, with bread, it kind of is almost like they've forgotten about it. What sign will you do now, they ask? Because our ancestors ate manna. <laughs> we heard you do something with bread, um, but our ancestors, they had manna. They had that miraculous bread from God um, in the Exodus when they left Egypt. Bread from heaven, they called it. And Jesus tells them, in case they've forgotten, that it was God who gave them the manna in the first place, not Moses. And now God has given them Fresh bread, real bread, true bread from heaven. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus says, it's not Moses who's who's given you bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Here is the real bread, here and now, Jesus says to them, for which that manna was just a picture and a foreshadowing. It was real. 
It's not just a story, but it was a foreshadowing and a picture of the true bread, true meaning, real, the ultimate bread. And I don't think they understand that he's talking about himself because they say to him, kind of half understandably, always give us this bread, always give us this bread. It sounds like the woman at the well. Sir, give me this water. And Jesus responds, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. It's the first. This is the first of the seven I am statements in in John's gospel. I am. (coughs) I am something Jesus said. And again, it harks back to Exodus. Exodus is floating around the background of this passage all the time. See, in Exodus, God revealed himself to Moses as I am who I am. Do you remember that? I am who I am. Or just I am. Says to Moses, go to your people and tell them I am has sent you. And we write that down. So in the Old Testament, that's just four letters, which you can pronounce Yahweh or sometimes another way. And we tend to write it down as the Lord in those little capital letters in the Bible, which is a shame because it's become a title rather than a name. And the Lord, he has a name. God has a name and it is I am. It is Yahweh. And so Jesus is making this claim that that I am this God, this Old Testament God, the almighty God, the creator God, the, the one being God. Of the Old Testament. I am, he says. And then he fills out what the I am looks like. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. In other words, Jesus is gluing his identity to the Lord of the Old Testament. And yet is revealing the Lord of the Old Testament to us in in new and greater detail. Of course, he's revealing the Lord to us as being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he calls the synagogue goers to believe that this is true. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So to these people in the synagogue, Jesus promises to fill that inner ache in a way that nothing else will or can ever do. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus promises to cure your inner ache, your inner cravings. See, those cravings that drive you, what are they? And what do you perceive them to be? You think you, you perceive it as a hunger for friendship. You perceive it as a hunger for sex. You maybe at times perceive it as a hunger for oblivion. You perceive it as a hunger for excitement or hunger for a high or a hunger for significance and a hunger for identity. And some of those are not necessarily wrong, but Jesus says that he will meet that inner hunger and thirst. Do you believe him?
doesn't say when you're converted that hunger and that thirst will stop immediately and you will never hunger and thirst again. What he's saying is that after you come to know him, when you have him in your life, whenever you have hunger and thirst, he is there to fill it. So we've seen the... uh, So we've gone on ahead too far on the slide. That's the next slide, that's right. So we've seen this crowd outside who don't believe. We've seen the preacher inside. He's calling them to belief. And now what about those congregations that do believe? And it's interesting. So Jesus um, turns the the verses are are on uh, on the sermon notes. So from 41 onwards, Jesus starts to talk about um, this congregation. He's recognizing there's a bunch of people who don't believe, but he says there will be some who do. And he says this, he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. Those who come to Jesus, come to Jesus, he says, because the Father gives them to him. And then he says it again in verse 44, no one uh, can come to me unless the Father draws them. This is even Jesus, we have to recognize. uh, He must be the perfect gospel minister, mustn't he? He He does nothing less than perfectly, and yet some believe and some don't believe. And Jesus says the reason for that is no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. There is no way of getting around this fact in John's Gospel, or I would suggest in the rest of the Bible. Father draws some to the Son and not others. And we get this wrong because we think the world is full of living people. And they choose. They either choose Christ or they don't choose Christ. Well, they're not. The world is full of zombies. The world is full of walking dead people. And only those that the Father calls come to Christ and find life in Christ. And if you're a Christian today, you are and you were one of them. And the proper response is eternal gratitude. But notice this. We then start to struggle with this, and I I understand that. But even while he knows this to be true, Jesus is involved in a mission, getting his truth in front of as many people as possible, and he is broadcasting a general plea to those people who are around him, believe in me. If it's good enough for Jesus to believe a view from above, which is how God sees it, and a view from below, which is how we see it, and hold those two together in tension, it's good enough for us. And if you're one of those who's been drawn by the Father to Christ and have trusted in Christ, notice what Jesus promises. I shall lose none of them, verse 39. I shall lose none of them. 
So the Father gives them to Christ. They come to faith in Christ. And those who trust Christ, God says, uh, uh, Jesus says, I will not lose you. I will not let you go. It is part of my perfect obedience to the Father, he says, that I will not let you lose. Real believers cannot fall away because they are kept by Christ. And because they're kept by him, he says, I will raise you up at the last day. Your future resurrection is assured. Your place in the new creation. When Jesus comes and judges, he will raise you up. And he says, I will give you eternal life. And I found this definition, which I found really helpful. Eternal life is primarily the passing over from condemnation to acceptance. From death to life. And then it is a foretaste of the banquet which will occur in the resurrection life. So eternal life is primarily passing over from condemnation to acceptance before God, from death to life. And Jesus says, as, as the Father gives life to the Son, so the Son gives life to believers. And later he'll tell you that's by his Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives life. And he sums it up as this, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And to eat, if you read through this passage carefully, is to believe, to believe Jesus is the Messiah sent by God. It sounds alien, but it shouldn't, because we say things like we devour books, drink in lectures, we swallow stories or lies. We ruminate on ideas, we chew things over, or we eat our own words. So to eat Christ is to believe he is who he said he is. And whoever eats has eternal life, and they'll be raised up on the last day. And in the meantime, they have communion with Christ. They have communion with Christ. I don't mean they have this, I mean they have communion. They have a living relationship with Christ. But Jesus goes on. I'm going to have to be really quick. <clears throat> because there's a cost. So it says, many disciples turned away because it was a hard teaching. <clears throat> In what way was this hard? Was it hard to understand? Yes and no. To eat is to believe. That's not hard. That only those who the Father draws comes to him. Is that hard? Yeah, in some ways it's hard to reconcile. But the difference between insiders and outsiders, the difference between disciples and the general congregation is that disciples stick around until they understand and work at their understanding. So accepting hard teachings is an aspect of submitting to Jesus' call to treat him as Lord. Do you get that? Accepting hard teachings is an aspect of calling Jesus Lord. Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom should we go? You've got the words of eternal life. We've come to believe in you. We know that you're the Holy One of God. He says, we know that. We know we believe in you. We know that. We're going to stick around and we're going to submit to your hard teachings. It's part of lordship. So just to try and uh, bring it down. What do we need to do? Do you believe? 
Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Lord, the same Lord as in the Old Testament? First question. Second, is your hunger being satisfied? Not that all hunger stops the moment you become a Christian, but there is an answer to all those hungers that is always there. It's time to let go of the energy drinks and start eating bread. Energy drinks are all those short hits that you put in the place of Christ to make life feel okay. Are you prepared to believe in Jesus despite the hard teachings? In other words, are you prepared to give up your mental reservations? I don't know whether whether I've got time to explain this to you if you don't get it first time around, sorry. It's kind of, but are you kind of holding you, there are kind of reservations that are like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, oh, I don't really hold this bit, or I don't really get this bit, and I don't like this bit, and I don't understand this bit. They all dull your experience of Christ. Mental reservation is just kind of like you're just shutting off a little bit of your mind. And in a sense, you've shut off, you've shut it off to Christ's lordship. His claim to be the Messiah, his claim to be Lord. You've got to do something with those mental reservations. Those hard things. You've either got to wrestle with them and wrestle with them until you, 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 you deal with them. Or you've just got to come to the Lord and say, you are Lord. Um, and I may not like it. Maybe a teaching you don't understand. Um, maybe a teaching you don't like. If you like all the teachings of Jesus, then I suggest that you've made him in your own image. But you have to wrestle those down. One way or the other. We're doing some wrestling about God and science um, on, on Fridays. You know, there are those questions. You've got to wrestle them down because otherwise they're not coming under the Lordship of Christ. And that dulls your relationship and your experience with him. And are you ready to change your spiritual diet? So exciting hear about people changing their spiritual diet. Um, there was this great question in the, in the Bible study. I'm going to leave it at this. Um, how would you describe your daily spiritual diet? This is one of the questions in the healthy and nourishing, junk food, starvation level, or the same old reheated food? What's your spiritual diet? How are you nourishing your spiritual life? How are you eating Christ? So final question, what is your angle of approach? And I'm going to change the metaphor. We started talking about angle of approach to John's gospel. Um, and it's okay if you, it's, it's not okay if you skim off the top and bounce off the top of John's gospel and, and understand nothing. It's not great if you, if you dig in and, and, and fry your brain. But what is your angle of approach to Jesus? It's a separate question. You're going to treat it in a shallow way and you're going to bounce off the top? Or are you going to plunge right in and say, oh, Jesus, I'm, I'm giving him my all. I'm going to wrestle down my mental reservations until I can say, Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm going to pray. Jesus, we say we believe that you are Lord and but when we unpack that, it's such a big thing that we mean by that that you are the I am of the Old Testament. The I am of the Old Testament is Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and you are the Son in person.
But Lord, we have to wrestle down where we're holding things back, where we're holding back part of our belief. And we ask you to point them out to us and help us deal with them. Either by finding answers or if there are no answers, it is simply something we don't like by submitting that to you and calling you Lord. And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.